Welcome to El Petróleo es Nuestro, Episode 10, The Mexican Energy Reform. I'm Brandon Seal. I'm going to go ahead and share my recommended listening this week up front. So far, I've been recommending great historical resources for understanding oil in the 20th century in Mexico. But as I hope has become clear, the story of oil in Mexico is really just the story of Mexico over the last 100 years, which is, in many unfortunate respects, simply the story of Mexico today. So as we arrive at the present day in this episode, I think it's important to cast our net wider to include other issues affecting contemporary Mexico. And I think John Moody's Mexico Explained podcast is absolutely great for this. He applies a biting wit, a British accent, and the even-handed observations of Luis Espino to current events in Mexico each week. Best of all, his father worked in the oil business for many years in and around Mexico, so he understands how listeners of this podcast are coming at these issues as well. And as final evidence for how well he gets Mexico, he ends each show with a Conspiracy of the Week segment. Part of what makes studying Mexico so maddening and so fun is how much it lends itself to wild conspiracy theories. I've tried to impose some pretty boring economic and ideological explanations for most of the events in our story, and I've probably sucked a lot of the fun out of it along the way in so doing. But go listen to John's podcast so you can really get the full flavor of Mexico. With that... Our last episode took us right through the 2008 financial collapse and into the buildup of the PRI's return to Los Pinos in 2012. Pemex's oil production was in manifest decline, down to 2.5 million barrels per day, effectively its lowest point since the Cantarel field had been brought online in 1981. The government remained dependent on Pemex for 40% of its national revenues, but was now faced with the need to frantically invest in exploration just to maintain production levels. And yet those increases weren't working. From about $500 million a year in the late 1990s to a few billion dollars a year in the early 2000s, Pemex would spend $28 billion in exploration-related investment in 2014 in a desperate attempt to replace reserves. All this while the government insisted on below-market retail prices for refined products, imposing an additional $10 to $20 billion a year in artificial losses on an organization already burdened by 150,000 employees and half again as many retirees to support. Meanwhile, Natural gas shortages had begun to plague the nation, forcing Mexico to import liquefied natural gas for $23 per million British thermal units, while infrastructure bottlenecks at the border prevented them from taking advantage of the $2 per million British thermal unit natural gas that Texas gas producers were struggling to get to market. These shortages led to alertas críticas, effectively natural gas brownout days when the valve was simply shut to residential and industrial consumers, bringing home to the public the severity of the situation. Still, Pemex undertook two transformational projects around this time that demonstrated that they understood the problems facing the country, but that also demonstrated their inability to really solve them. The first was the Los Ramones Pipeline, an 860-kilometer, 48-inch and 42-inch trunk line flowing from Aguadulce, Texas, down through the Mexican heartland, supplying the Bajio and Mexico City regions with natural gas. It was a monumental project, $3.7 billion in total investment and a really brilliant idea that leveraged Pemex's concentrated buying power in a Texas gas market fractured up into a bunch of small players. The U.S. portion of the project was awarded to NET, a small Texas midstream company with some marketing savvy and good ties to producing regions like the Eagleford and traditional hubs back at Katy and Houston Ship Channel. The Mexican portion of the project was split into three parts. The northernmost part, Phase 1, would be owned by Gasoductos de Chihuahua, a JV between Pemex and Ianova, the Mexican spin-off of San Diego-based Sempra Energy. The middle portion, Phase 2 North, would be owned by a subsidiary of Pemex, 
TAG pipelines. And the southernmost portion, Phase 2 South, would be owned by a JV between GDF Suez and Pemex. As I mentioned, it was a brilliant, logical, and necessary project, and its champions within Pemex were crucified for it. When prices for gas delivered into Los Ramones jumped when it went online in December 2014, the project's critics pounced on Pemex for failing to secure long-term supply contracts up front. The critics, it seems, failed to appreciate that the whole point of the pipeline was to be at a liquid point where Pemex wouldn't have to take market risk or rely on long-term contracts, and the quantity of South Texas gas production that has now been pointed to Agua Dulce has since dropped prices at Agua Dulce more than enough to offset that initial bump. Then, when construction difficulties on the southern portion of the line began to mount, the project came to be viewed as a low-return, poor capital allocation decision by Pemex, who decided to sell off their interest to the U.S. private equity firms BlackRock and First Reserve. Los Ramones marked the end of Pemex's attempts to build out Mexico's woefully insufficient natural gas infrastructure, as the CFE and Senegas would soon step in with fresh balance sheets to take the lead on these projects. More on them later. The second great project that Pemex undertook in the years before the Mexican energy reform was in petrochemicals. Pemex had sat for decades on underutilized opportunities to develop its petrochemical facilities. Frankly, there was little incentive for them to do so. With their monopoly on the import of hydrocarbons, importing petrochemicals and simply marking them up was a major profit center for Pemex. When Pemex announced the award of the Etileno 21 project to a joint venture between Braskem and Idesa to take 66,000 barrels per day of ethane and turn them into a million tons per year of ethylene, it promised to revive Mexico's petrochemical industry. Pemex committed to supply the joint venture the ethane, pay it a tolling fee, and then buy all the ethylene at the tailgate of the plant. But from the standpoint of today, as the complex prepares to go into operation, Pemex's role seems increasingly superfluous. Pemex's buying power is really being used in this instance against the market by inserting itself as both a supply and demand middleman. Further, Pemex appears to be significantly short ethane, requiring it now to go into the world market's rather limited and expensive options for importing ethane by water. The Etileno 21 project was by no means a failure, but it was an example of how Pemex's size had turned against itself, and rather contributing to the nation's economic development, was now in a way impeding it. And while other countries like Colombia and Brazil had navigated wildly successful openings of their oil industries to foreign investment, Mexico still struggled to make their convoluted service contracts work, including that little multiple service block called the Almost Block that I mentioned in the previous episode. By this time, around 2010, I was the superintendent of construction for the Almost Block, and we were fighting to drill the first shale well in Mexico. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably broadly familiar with the effect the shale revolution had on the supply of oil and gas worldwide. Of course, the quote shale revolution is really a misnomer, as many of the formations that have yielded up so much new production in the last 10 years, such as the Eagleford, are not properly shales. They are just very tight rocks, that is to say, highly impermeable. Do you recall Cantorell's 8,000 millidarcy permeability? In the Eagleford, we're talking in millionths of a millidarcy, or nanodarcies. Now, what really makes the shale revolution work were so-called unconventional completion techniques, which, again, is also kind of a misnomer, since the completion techniques weren't anything different. Fracking has been around for over half a century, after all. They were just bigger and combined with other newer technologies, like horizontal drilling. Nomenclature aside, the shale revolution had reversed America's declining oil production, giving the lie to Hubbard's peak, and revitalized the South Texas oil field. As early as 2005, the little company that I worked for, Lewis Energy, had proposed drilling an Eagleford well in Mexico, 
but the timing wasn't right and the technology was still prohibitively expensive. But around 2008, people started to talk about it again. Completion costs had come down, and the first rumors of successful Eagleford tests were beginning to spread around the South Texas oil patch. Not counting some unsuccessful Eagleford tests that we had experimented with ourselves as early as 2002 and 2003, we at Lewis also participated in the second successful Eagleford well in Texas with Petrohawk, the Dora Martin 1H, and so we knew what the potential was. In my book, called appropriately enough, The Eagleford, which you can find on Amazon, you can read the whole story of the lead-up to and drilling of what became the Emergente Numero Uno well, the first shale well in Mexico, which we drilled in 2010. But for our purposes here, we need only focus on the shortcomings that drilling that well exposed. First, it took three years of approvals and cancellations, mobilizations and demobilizations, to get this well drilled and flowing to sales. Three years isn't per se a long time for such a revolutionary concept, but when you consider that right across the border, in the same period, 300 wells were drilled in the Texas Eagleford, and that today, eight years later, when there are more than 16,000 wells producing in the Eagleford, and less than three dozen unconventional wells total producing in Mexico, you realize that there's a problem. Second, the well exposed the inefficiency of Pemex's decision-making process in drilling wells and learning from mistakes. An independent oil company develops a well plan, commits to it, and executes on it. If the results are poor, they change the plan for the next well, and they try it out. But because it is so difficult to get wells approved within Pemex, particularly unconventional wells, Pemex has to take advantage of the few wells they do drill to run as many experiments as possible. On the Emergente Uno, the completion plan was in flux up until the well was actually spud in. It was even changed during the completion itself. The five toe stages were fracked with a big slick water frack, while the eight heel stages were fracked with a cross-link hybrid service company boondoggle frack. It was a science experiment run amok. And all this exposes the third major challenge that Pemex seemed unable to work around. Service costs. The oil field service industry in Mexico hasn't been competitive for a generation. Service company margins have grown fat at Pemex's expense because they have effectively become a form of financing. Pemex can't take on partners, but they can pay outrageous fixed prices to service contractors to do things that they can't free up the capital to do. And the truth is, with Pemex's bloated overhead, the service companies were legitimately saving Pemex money most of the time. All of the above remain as major institutional hurdles to developing new fields and testing new technologies within Mexico. In this sense, the Emergente Well exposed the lie behind the old populist vision of oil wealth as being simply a bounty waiting to be exploited. The Eagleford, after all, has been around just as long as Mexico's giant gushers have been. It just wasn't economical to produce until a hundred years of technological innovation and the tight-fisted experimental ethos of the independent oil field had been applied to it. Let me try to restate this a different way because I'm making a bold claim. I'm basically saying that the Eagleford caused the Mexican energy reform. Sound crazy? Stick with me for a second. For 70 years, Mexico could rationalize away the outsized development of the Texas oil field as being something irrational or irresponsible, the product of hucksters and snake oil salesmen riding boom and bust cycles without creating any real wealth. Or they could point to the geology and just claim that the well densities supported by the East Texas and Permian fields were something unique that wouldn't necessarily work in Mexican oil fields, no matter how similarly they looked. But with the Eagleford and with the Emergente well, you had the exact same rock running across 400 miles of South Texas and Mexico. And that muddy little 20-foot deep river that marks the international boundary doesn't have any effect on the geology 10,000 feet below the surface. This wasn't just an analogous trend to some sort of South Texas structural play like the Lobo. 
And this wasn't just similar stratigraphy to some sort of late Cretaceous sandstone. This was the straight-up same rock. And by December 2013, there were 7,500 wells producing out of it in Texas, almost all of which had been drilled in the previous 36 months. Mexico at that time had less than two dozen unconventional wells total and less than 10,000 wells total producing in the entire country. Texas has 250,000 and 250,000 or so miles of gathering and pipelines compared to Mexico's 25,000. With the shale revolution, with the Eagleford, with the Emergente well, you couldn't deny it any longer. The oil field is about efficiency. The world oil price swings around on a lot of different factors, but fundamentally, it's looking for the cost to produce the next incremental barrel of oil. If your country's oil is more expensive to produce, it won't be coming out of the ground. And it's an exponential feedback loop. If Colombia can produce oil for 10% cheaper than Mexico, Colombia is going to drill many, many more times than 10% more wells than Mexico. And if Eagleford wells can only be drilled for $20 million a piece in Mexico, instead of, say, $7 million a piece in Texas, then there will be no Eagleford in Mexico. Period. And the bounty will never be realized. Pemex tried to make unconventional work. They really did. They studied the hell out of it, and at one point even paid Slumberjay $100 million to study unconventionals for them throughout the whole country. But the Emergente Uno well showed why they couldn't make it work, and it showed why Pemex could never compete in the modern oil field. A company run by politicians is almost always going to make bad business decisions. A company without a profit motive has no incentive to innovate. And a company that pays more in taxes than it makes in profits has no reason to even show up for work in the morning. All this describes the situation of Pemex in 2013. The constitutional protections that had been established to protect the Mexican national patrimony were now actively inhibiting the development of that very patrimony. And indeed, Mexico as a nation was suffering in 2012. After the failure of two PAN administrations to improve governance in Mexico and the escalation of drug violence in the final years of Felipe Calderón's presidency in 2012, Mexico decided that it needed something different. Or more accurately, that it needed what it had had before for 70 years, with a newer, fresher face. That face was a made-for-TV governor from the state of Mexico, who also happened to have all the right ties to the old power structures within the PRI party. When the results of the 2012 Mexican presidential election were announced, Enrique Peña Nieto had squeaked out a plurality of 38% over the PRD's 32% and the PAN's 25%. And then something really quite amazing happened on Peña Nieto's second day in office. The new president sat alongside the leaders of the right-wing PAN and the left-wing PRD parties and announced the Pact for Mexico, composed of 95 specific policy proposals that the three parties committed to advancing together, despite their past or present ideological differences. It's hard to recall another example of something like this in the modern political world. But before we get to kumbaya about what a great example this was of Mexican politicians setting aside their differences to address the really important challenges facing their country, it's worth remembering something important about the PRI party. The PRI party has never been an ideological party, as our friend John Moody says it. It's fundamentally statist more than anything else. And indeed, I've described it as a reaction to the extreme trauma of the Mexican Revolution. It was formed by the competing Mexican political power bases to prevent their disputes from spilling out into the open and to keep decision-making behind closed doors in Mexico, which also happens to be beyond the reach of a certain meddling northern neighbor. The PAN and PRD parties, then, could comfortably view the election of the PRI candidate not as an ideological defeat, but more of a return to an older, familiar way of getting things done in government. As long as you kissed the ring and made the right deal, you could typically trade with someone for what you really wanted. So with the support of all three parties secured, 
The Pact for Mexico fast-tracked a number of much-needed reforms in Mexico in education, telecommunications, taxes, and, of course, energy. Within one year of taking office, Peña Nieto and the PRI had radically amended the three most untouchable articles of the Mexican Constitution, those regarding oil, with vocal but really only token opposition from the left. Eight months later, in August of 2014, the secondary laws were passed, turning on its head the entire energy regulatory structure that had preceded it. The Mexican energy reform has been so radical that it is, in some ways, quite easy to describe. Prior to the reform, exploration and production were reserved to Pemex. Gas processing was reserved to Pemex. Liquids pipelines were reserved to Pemex. Refining was reserved to Pemex. Primary petrochemicals were reserved to Pemex. Private ownership of gas stations was allowed, but they made only a fixed single-digit margin on the product, which was, of course, provided by Pemex. But after the reform, every single one of those activities just listed is theoretically open to private participation. Pemex was allowed to keep all of its proven reserves, about 83% of its probable reserves, and about 21% of its possible reserves. The rest it handed over to the Comisión Nacional de Hidrocarburos, who would be charged with tendering out ENP blocks to private parties. In the midstream space, the Comisión Reguladora de Energía, or the CRE, which had actually been around, albeit in a not very powerful form, since 1995, was fully empowered to regulate pipelines and storage along North American lines, based on principles of open access and cost-of-service-based rates. Downstream, Pemex was pushed out almost entirely from the retail and distribution side of the business across all products, from natural gas to LPG to gasoline, though they retained all of their refining, processing, and petrochemical assets. By 2017 and 2018, all price controls on hydrocarbons will have been phased out. Previously, prices for natural gas, LPG, and refined products were the same throughout the entire country, regardless of the logistics required to get that product to market. This sort of fixed price, predictably, resulted in shortages throughout the country, which were particularly intolerable to citizens of northern states who had plentiful access to hydrocarbons from the U.S. if only they had been allowed to import them. Also as a result of the reform, Mexico established a sort of sovereign wealth fund to administer the royalties anticipated from the new ENP contracts. And though mineral rights remained unequivocally the property of the state, the 1960 law prohibiting risk-sharing contracts was rescinded, giving Pemex the ability to negotiate farmouts in the future. And to align the Mexican oil field with international standards, the contracts were structured in such a way as to allow private companies to, quote, book reserves, a necessity deriving from the reserve-based loans with which most independent oil companies finance their operations. But natural gas is where the proponents of the reform focused their most visible initial efforts, and with good reason. First, natural gas had already been partly deregulated in 1995, so a regulatory framework already existed. Second, natural gas just wasn't as iconic as oil, and so presented a softer political target. Third, unlike oil, natural gas was not a cash crop for Pemex. Indeed, and fourth, Pemex's historical underinvestment in natural gas meant that Mexicans actually paid artificially high prices for natural gas, unlike their typically artificially low prices for gasoline. Fifth, if Mexico didn't do something to get more natural gas into the country, things were going to get really bad. In 2011, Mexico was only importing about 1.5 BCF per day. Today, Mexico imports almost 3.5 BCF a day, of the 7 BCF a day of national consumption. Imports are projected to go as high as 6 or, according to the most aggressive estimates, even 9 BCF a day in the next few years. As Mexicans say, lo más caro es cuando no hay, and there was about to be not enough gas in Mexico. But on the other hand, and sixth, 
The value proposition in targeting natural gas investment was obvious, and the potential impact was nearly immediate. I already mentioned the size of the arbitrage. Instead of buying liquefied natural gas for $23 per million British thermal units, Mexico could buy all the gas they wanted for $2 per million British thermal units from Texans that were drilling gas wells for one-third the price of what Mexico could drill them for. And so the instrument that Mexico's government chose for bringing their natural gas infrastructure into the modern age was the CFE, the Comisión Federal de Electricidad. Prior to the energy reform, electrical generation, transmission, and distribution, with a few exceptions for self-consumption, were reserved to the Comisión Federal de Electricidad, or CFE. CFE was the largest single customer of Pemex as well, accounting for nearly half of Pemex's natural gas sales, which created no little tension between these two state entities. To ensure that the CFE could effectively carry out this modernization, the energy reform moved all of Pemex's long-haul natural gas transmission pipelines over to an independent system operator called Senegas, who was charged with managing the system and ensuring non-discriminatory access to it by all interested shippers, which is to say, to make sure that the CFE and other non-PEMEX shippers could move gas around on the system at reasonable rates. And second, the CFE undertook a three-year, $20 billion spree of projects intended to underwrite almost 10,000 kilometers worth of new long-haul pipelines in Mexico, effectively doubling Mexico's long-haul infrastructure. This effort has been widely viewed to have been successful. Thanks to an abundance of cheap capital around the world and a high level of interest among foreign investors to be in Mexico, these pipeline tenders have been highly competitive, and the CFE has ensured long-term access to and optionality in American natural gas markets for many, many years to come. Of course, no one judges an energy reform on how many pipelines get built. The iconic part of the oil business remains with the drill bit, and people's views of the upstream opening have been decidedly more mixed. In 2014, the Comisión Nacional de Hidrocarburos, or the CNH, conducted its first tenders for private EMP blocks, the so-called Ronda 1.1. The results were resoundingly disappointing, as only two of the 14 blocks up for tender were awarded. Publicly, the results were spun as a result of poor world oil prices, but really it was the contract terms themselves that were to blame. They looked like service contracts poorly converted into production-sharing contracts. Additionally, as commentator Pedro Van Meurs pointed out, the contracts required operators to obtain no less than 24 different types of governmental approvals, for most of which no statutory response time existed, and for which failure to obtain those governmental approvals was grounds for administrative rescission of the contract. But the CNH learned from their mistakes. They adjusted the contracts a little and lowered the minimum required bids so that by the time that round 1.3 came along in December 2015, all 25 of the offered blocks were able to be successfully awarded. In fact, the bids were outrageously high, averaging a 55% royalty and ranging as high as an 85% royalty, not counting taxes, and an additional 1-10% base royalty. If you're stealing oil out of the back of a truck, you can't make money paying an 85% royalty on it. Indeed, the tenders were so outrageous that it makes you wonder if these guys are really going to be able to perform. Unfortunately, most of the participants were largely inexperienced Mexican companies or unknown foreign entities, and the fact that almost a quarter of the original winners were unable to close on the blocks gives one cause for concern. And there's a more general, broader cause for concern, too. To date, there have still been very few privately sponsored infrastructure projects either. That is, the engine of growth underwriting these large infrastructure projects is still primarily the state entities. Even my current company, Howard Energy's 200-mile, 30-inch Nueva Era pipeline connecting the Eagleford to markets in Monterey, Mexico, 
which the Secretary of Energy himself has called the best example of the energy reform to date, has as its anchor shipper the CFE. And on the refined product side, the opening has been even slower. In 2013, Mexico averaged about 400,000 barrels per day of refined product imports, which is projected to climb to over 700,000 barrels per day in the 2020s. As of July 2016, it was already at 534,000 barrels per day. It's not simple to describe what's been inhibiting the private development of infrastructure projects as a result of the energy reform. There are several factors, but the three most important ones are these. The first is the lack of knowledge by private market participants in Mexico in how an open energy market works. Mexican companies are incredibly sophisticated and savvy, yet they've never had to think about how they get their hydrocarbons. A gas station owner in Mexico gets his gasoline the same way he gets his Twinkies. When he runs out, he calls the supplier and it shows up. He doesn't have to make long-term commitments or post guarantees of performance. In a certain sense, Pemex has made it too easy for these guys for too long. The second challenge is the inability to rely on or enforce contracts in Mexico. The only way to make long-term or complicated logistical arrangements work is to be able to trust in the paper that gets signed to make them real. This inability to trust in contracts, and consequently, your ability to get them enforced, imposes a real cost on the Mexican economy generally, and stands in particular in the way of building out the long-term infrastructure that Mexico needs. And the last major structural hurdle is Pemex itself. It is really unclear for everyone what Pemex's role is going to be, including for folks within Pemex itself. On the one hand, Pemex has been specifically targeted by the regulators with so-called asymmetric regulation, forcing them to sell their 9,000-kilometer natural gas pipeline network to another state entity, Senegas, for only $50 million, and to give up all but 30% of the markets in those areas where they have had a controlling position for so long. And yet Pemex remains as the only party in Mexico with experience buying and importing hydrocarbons and plays a necessary role every day in supplying major Mexican consumers. And though the regulators may be anxious to break Pemex's monopoly in certain markets, Pemex is not nearly so motivated to give them up. Private companies have to tiptoe gently into the free market as they look at alternative supply solutions to Pemex. They don't dare offend Pemex for fear of losing supply in the near term while new projects get built out. And they also recognize what a sweetheart deal they've had for such a long time as Pemex has shielded them from the swings of international commodity markets. Pemex has been left in a really unenviable situation after the Mexico energy reform. It was for 70 years the Gibraltar of Mexican national identity, as historian Lorenzo Meyer has called it. And almost all Mexicans are loath to see it disappear entirely. Yet it carries the scars of 70 years of abuse by the Mexican government, including $90 billion in pension liabilities, over $100 billion in debt, and losses of $30 billion per year or so, with no end in sight. In 2015, operating costs increased by 9%, while production fell another 6.5%, and is projected to land at 2.1 million barrels per day by the end of 2016, leading the rating agencies to knock Pemex down to the last, lowest level of investment grade, a rating it is in distinct danger of losing in the near future. A few measures, however, came out of the energy reform to try and help Pemex. The oil workers' union was stripped of its seats on Pemex's board. Pemex was given broad theoretical ability to divest of assets and partner with foreign companies, which it has exercised to a limited extent in some deepwater projects, the divestiture of the Los Ramones pipelines to private equity funds, and the planned sale or leaseback of other downstream assets in the near future. In 2015, the Fibra E was announced, intended to be a sort of Mexican MLP, that would allow Pemex and eventually other private players to monetize assets in the public market without giving up control of them. 
and retaining, as it has, most of its proven and probable reserves, Pemex has the potential to negotiate some really exciting farm outs to companies with lower cost structures and more efficient practices. And last year, they undertook a major corporate restructuring, leaving the E&P division by itself, but consolidating many of the midstream refining and petrochemical divisions into a new group called Transformación Industrial, or TRI for short, and spinning off several divisions into independent businesses, such as logistics and fertilizer production. But the oil workers' union remains, in many ways, as powerful as ever, and a burden more than ever to Pemex's ability to ever operate efficiently or competitively. At some level, it seems as though Pemex has effectively given up on the idea of ever being to truly compete in an open market, and seems to be placing most of its hopes on JVs, farmouts, and the strategic use of their legacy assets to keep out competition where they can. This, unfortunately, is not the strategy of a dynamic, growing company. And Pemex is still plagued by the political meddling that led them to commit to $12 billion of refinery upgrades last year, when refining remains their least profitable and least promising line of business. And they always seem to believe their own painfully rosy five-year projections about domestic production levels, refinery utilization percentages, and pipeline capacity, leading them to continue to underinvest in infrastructure, even while their legacy assets inhibit the development of new private solutions. The fact is that Pemex is not configured to compete in a truly free market, and doesn't have the money to do so even if they wanted to. And yet its mere presence in the market is frightening away private investment in the Mexican energy industry. It's a sad but almost typical sort of Mexican Nash equilibrium. Suboptimal, but for the present, irremediable. Despite all its flaws, Pemex was and is a proud institution. It deserves better than a long, slow decline into bankruptcy. But it also deserves better than to be the impediment to the modernization of Mexico's energy industry. If there's hope in Pemex, I'd say it's in PMI. PMI, recall, is the offshore subsidiary of Pemex, charged with marketing Pemex's products to the world and of importing products into Mexico. Further, because their budget was set by the Pemex directors and not by the Mexican Congress, they have been able to develop cash reserves and logistical expertise and, of course, knowledge of Mexican markets. Combined, too, with talk that PMI might absorb the gas trading arm of Pemex, called MexGas, which has also operated for many years in international markets, you could have a truly dynamic commercial powerhouse driving real value creation for Pemex. But I'll confess that I still think that Mexican politicians and regulators are skeptical of the idea of value creation generally in the oil field. They're not alone. The default view of people in this world, it seems, is that the oil business is simply about taking wealth out of the ground and putting it into your pocket. And if that's your view, then of course, you view every oil concession and every long-term contract as simply a giveaway. And as such, the right thing to do is to extract as much value as possible back from the beneficiary of these concessions and contracts. Vestiges of this kind of thinking are present throughout the Mexican energy reform. And to the extent that the Mexican energy reform fails to take into account the lessons of economic liberalization over the last 30 years, I think it'll fall short. I'm worried that it's modeled its ENP contracts after the old service contracts that incentivize inefficiency and layered on both production sharing and profit sharing language to make sure that no operator ever makes too much money drilling in Mexico. It's hard to imagine how the shale revolution would have come about in North America if the Railroad Commission had taken such an approach. I'm worried that although Mexico has opened its market to private participation, it's largely left intact the state monopolies. It takes a highly complex, convoluted, an administratively inefficient regulatory framework to manage a market with both private and state entities trying to compete for the same business. And though Mexico has moved toward a North American regulatory framework for pipeline regulation, they created alongside it European-style independent system operators, 
And so I worry that these independent system operators could become what the state monopolies were pre-reform. Places where private interests can get the state to cover uneconomic investments, again, potentially at the cost of private initiative. And my last worry is a political one, that the reform will fall short of its initial hype and lead to a political backlash. Some initial government projections promise 500,000 new jobs as a direct result of the Mexican energy reform by 2018, and 2.5 million new jobs by 2025. It's very hard to see how those numbers would actually come about. And to all the international investors that are looking for Mexico to be an American-style oil boom or even a Colombian-style market opening, you need to temper those expectations as well. This will be a slow, protracted rollout toward a still very highly regulated energy industry in Mexico, with a lot of missteps and legal hurdles along the way. With that in perspective, however, I think it's important to note three areas where the reform has been successful. And I think my current company, Howard Energy's projects, in these three areas are illustrative. The first is that the reform has brought in a truly competitive natural gas market to Mexico. For example, our 200-mile Nueva-era pipeline bringing Texas production directly to Monterey consumers is going to give Monterey the most competitive natural gas market in Latin America, which will create competition and which is already driving down prices for consumers there. This is a real win for the energy reform and something that will confer a real market advantage to northern Mexico, which was already the most industrialized and business-savvy region of Latin America. So even if the energy reform doesn't create 500,000 direct jobs, but it does make natural gas prices more competitive, it's going to have a profound impact on the economic competitiveness of Mexico. Second, the reform could actually be improving the rule of law in Mexico. Here's how. Here at Howard Energy, our Dos Aguilas project will be the first private refined products pipeline in Mexico. It aims to do for refined products what Nueva Era is doing for natural gas, namely directly and seamlessly interconnecting North American production with Mexican consumption. But more significantly, when we committed to guarantee the integrity of our customer shipments against theft, overnight it revolutionized what a pipeline customer was entitled to expect in Mexico. For too many years to count, Mexican consumers were bearing the cost of pipeline theft and were powerless to do anything about it. To the extent that pipeline companies are now having to take responsibility for the security and integrity of their lines, the rule of law and the law of contracts are being made markedly stronger, and it helps to demonstrate the strength of the private market against demagogues that still cling to facile fantasies of a state-run economy. Third, the reform has brought billions of dollars in foreign investment in Mexico, and not just in the energy space. The symbolism and boldness of the reform was an important signal to international markets. It's been 40 years since foreign companies have so aggressively moved into Mexico, recovering the confidence that they lost in the financial trauma of the 80s and 90s. This has helped spur the Mexican economy to five solid years of more than 3% economic growth, with profoundly positive effects for Mexican workers and consumers, and has made Mexico the premier destination in Latin America for foreign investment. It has all the sexiness of an emerging market, with the advantage of being right next door to the world's largest economy. But the last and most important success of the energy reform is how little it really changed things in Mexico. And I'm not being sarcastic. Market deregulations are always tumultuous affairs. Private in Mexico is always viewed with the suspicion that really it is driven by well-connected cronies sucking off the tit of the state. And oil generally is viewed in Mexico with a radical veneration exceeded only by the Virgin of Guadalupe and the national soccer team. Even the idea of a deregulation in favor of private initiative of the Mexican energy industry was unthinkable five years ago. And so the reform, as bold as it was, has had to be rolled out cautiously in the manner most palatable to the most vocal Mexican constituencies of the pre-reform world, 
And it's done that. The oil workers union gets to keep their benefits. Mexican industrials get to keep their indirect subsidies. And the state bureaucracy preserves their prerogatives. And so really, when you think about it, what other criteria could there be for judging the success of the Mexican energy reform than ensuring that the Mexican energy industry should remain decidedly and unquestionably Mexican? El petróleo, as the Mexicans say, es nuestro. Y tiene que ser así. In the next episode, which will be, alas, the final episode, we'll wrap up our little adventure through the last hundred years or more of Mexican oil history, and I'll try to draw some general conclusions about Mexico at large. That has been for me, after all, the real purpose of this project, to gain more insight into the peculiarities of Mexican society, and by so doing, more perspective into my own. Hasta la próxima.